Uh, Father, we pray for the presence of your Spirit in our, uh, in our house this morning, and that you would minister to every individual in the way that is uh, on your heart. Um, we pray, Lord, for a strengthening of all that is best within us. Uh, we pray uh, for the humility to, uh, to be who we are, to try what we ought, and uh, to grow how we should. In Jesus' name, amen. We are wrapping up uh, our sermon series on the life of King David uh, this morning, and then for a few weeks, this is all going to be Christmassy stuff. Uh, have you enjoyed uh, the sermon series on the life of King David? An interesting fellow, uh, David. And we're going to start, uh, we're going to end the series uh, by talking about what we we talked about at the start of the series, uh, which is uh, honor and, and the code of honor. Uh, when we were first introduced to David, he was a shepherd boy at the time, at the beginning of his life story in, in Scripture, the only thing that we were told about him was that he was a man uh, after God's own heart. There was something about David's heart that reflected the heart of God, and, and, and we weren't really told what that was. And then we are told the life story of David as if we are supposed to be detectives, as if we were kind of supposed to figure out what, what, what it was about David's heart that made God select him to be king in the first place. Because he was just a, just a shepherd boy, and, and God saw something in his heart and said, oh yeah, that is the heart that I want reigning over Israel. That is the heart that I want celebrated for thousands of years to come. So, what the heck was that? Uh, was, was the question. And uh, then we get the story of David's life, which is epic and filled with worship and incredible faithful choices, uh, courage beyond measure, and adultery and murder and dysfunction like few of us have ever known. <laughs> It's like really high highs and really low lows. And in that, we're supposed to meditate. Well, I mean, what, what is it at the core of this guy's heart uh, that, that really makes it work? And, and, and I've always understood David through, through this lens of, of what I have called his, his code of honor, his willingness to do what is right, at least sometimes, no matter what the cost is, just to do right because it's right, uh, because it's the honorable thing to hold himself to a code. So let me ask you uh, to begin today, what does it mean to be a person of honor? What does it mean to be a, if you're going to call somebody, oh, what a great person, what makes a person great? Consistency. That's good. Consistency, the hallmark of greatness. Was David consistent? Oh, heck no. <laughs> no way. Good answer. Good answer. Ought David to have been consistent? Uh, yes, yes. Well, I think Jenny's on to something there. What else? A great person. Attitude makes a person great, uh, particularly a bad attitude. No, good attitude makes a person great. What kind of attitude makes a person great? An attitude of faith. Faith attitude, yeah. I will, I will accept that. Uh, 
Yeah, I think, you know, that's a good one. A faith attitude. Sometimes we say around blue water, faith is the attitude that says God could do something great right here, right now. What else? What makes a person just great? A person is teachable, and there's something to do with teachability. It has to do with humility and a willingness to change and to grow. That's really good. I'm sorry? A person is accountable. That helps you become great because you're, you're being honest and checking in. Was David accountable? I mean, actually, yeah, kind of. I mean, he made huge mistakes, but he got called on it, and he was an excellent repenter, wasn't he? All right? I mean, he fouled up, but he never hit it uh, when he, well, not for long, when he did. All, all, great, um, all great answers. Um, but the main thing is I think that's a worthy meditation. What makes a person great? What makes a person honorable? And in some fashion, I think the story of David suggests to us that we ought to be thinking about precisely that. What makes, what makes me great? What makes me a great person? What makes me an honorable person? And David did not always perform to the standard, but I think there was something in him that was constantly thinking about it anyway. He knew that there was a standard of honor. He had developed a standard of honor, and it was his constant meditation. I do think you get that in the Psalms that he wrote. He wrote between 73 and 76 Psalms um, that we know of, of the 150 that he collected uh, in in Scripture. Meditate on on what makes you great. Meditate on what makes you honorable. Celebrate it. And never stop meditating on it. Never stop thinking about it. I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, being a person of honor, being a great person, involves doing great things in service of of simple goodness. It's It's not the cause. It's the character. You know, I mean, the cause is God, but you could do small things with great commitment, and I think that makes you heroic, at least in terms of the kingdom uh, of God. Well, at the very end of the Chronicles of of David's life, uh, we've been going through Samuel, and at the end of the Chronicle of his life in 2 Samuel, we get stories of David's mighty men. These were really famous characters Uh, around David. In some ways, King David was sort of the prototype for Robin Hood and his merry men. He had merry men. Personally, I'd rather have mighty men. Robin had merry men. Judge for yourself. Um, uh, But very much like that story, uh, King David was a Robin Hood type figure uh, through uh, his, his most epic years. He was an outlaw living out in the wilderness, living in caves and forests. But in that capacity, he fought off all of Israel's enemy, enemies, and only then uh, did he become king. And he gathered around him at that time these fellows who would become hugely famous in their own right, his band of, of mighty men. Uh, and, and the stories, the chronicles of his mighty men, his, his partners in crime and heroism, is stuck at the very end of his life story, even though they had been with him uh, the whole time. And I think it's because uh, 
that the chronicle of their lives and their, their feats have something to do with how best to remember David's legacy. And we'll just leave that point aside uh, for a second. Uh, the, uh, the mighty men appear in a couple different books uh, of the Bible. There were 37 or 40 or so individuals, depending on which list you read and how the lists are, are structured. Basically about three dozen guys who sort of form David's main military uh, posse. Occasionally one of them would die or get killed and they'd be replaced by another guy. So the names vary a little bit depending on, on the list that, that you read. A lot of them have great deeds associated with their names. Uh, and again, these largely were guys that joined David when he was hiding out in the hills, when he was wanted by the cops, when he was hunted by King Saul and the government of Israel was trying to kill him. Uh, and the guys that gathered to him there were told were ruffians and criminals and malcontents and debtors. They were a rough and tumble crowd who had trouble in regular society, but they gathered around David and boom, they kind of became national heroes. A number of them were foreigners, which is interesting. They were not native uh, Israelites. Uh, some of them ended, unfortunately, like Uriah the Hittite, who was a foreigner who joined David, David and became a big hero, and uh, whom David murdered in order to cover over David's adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Terribly tragic story. We can't get through all of the stories in, in one sermon. I encourage you to read them sometime uh, yourself. But let's read a few verses about uh, some of the most famous of these mighty men. There's an excerpt from 2 Samuel uh, 23 in the back of your program. It'll be up on the big board as well. You can mark it in your own Bibles. Follow along on your smartphones uh, if you wish. 2 Samuel 23, we're going to read verses 8 through 17. <clears throat> These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Uh, Joshua Bashabeth, a Taklamite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Okay, that's a standard. That's a heck of a fight. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. It's commitment. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. <laughs> That's a great line like out of Homer or something. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Hararite. This guy's my favorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. They did not get the lentils. 
During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam. You remember this cave. That was his big stronghold where he was hiding out. So these three guys, uh, uh, Josheb or Eleazar or Shamar, maybe it was a different three, but uh, they came to him at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, which is sort of David's family town, his hometown. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He says this offhandedly. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he says. Is it not the blood of men who went at risk of their lives? And David would not drink it, which either really honored the guys or just totally hacked them off. I'm not sure. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Uh, the way the mighty men were constructed organizationally, it seemed, is that there were like, there's like the, the body of mighty men. They were like, you know, the, the ace commandos of David's forces. And then of those guys, there were three that were like the, the baddest of badasses. Can I say badasses in church? I think I can. It's blue water. Uh, and... And then there were three uh, kind of generals or captains that were sort of over them. So if you read, I'm saying that because if you yourselves read through the accounts, and you should because they're, they're just awesome and entertaining, if nothing else. Um, these guys were like the three most famous. And everybody in Israel uh, would have known uh, these stories. So you got like 30-ish guys with three, three captains and, and three kind of special bodyguards. We read uh, their names in association with some of David's other stories. They, they tend to always be near him. How did you become a captain uh, in, in the mighty men, uh, the, special, uh, the special force of warriors? Um, well, evidently, you didn't go to officer training school. Um, you had to do great feats of hand-to-hand -hand combat. And you really distinguish yourself on the battlefield. You had to be super capable uh, in hand-to-hand -hand combat because that then guys would would follow you you know there were no there were no back lines uh, in the sort of warfare that David did everybody was on the front lines and you got this guy Joshua Bashabeth his friends called him Joe by the way so Joe um, killed you know 800 men other accounts will talk of killing 300 but he killed an awful lot of guys in in a single encounter um, so, yeah, that made him famous right away. You got Eleazar, Eleazar, son of Dodai, who stood his ground when everyone else bailed, uh, is the story. Uh, he committed to battle to the point of his hand freezing to his sword. He held his sword so long and swung it so long that his hand cramped and he couldn't even let go, which I totally understand because it happens to me when I do the weed eating. Same thing, same thing. It's like total commitment to the mission. Uh, and uh, this guy did it where, while he was hacking up uh, enemies. I know, I know this is very violent, 
and you sort of get distracted by the violence uh, of it all. It's like, wow, what violence? Why are we celebrating this? Well, these sorts of guys were glorified in their culture because if they didn't kill the enemy raiders, the enemy raiders would kill your family. You know, I mean, this was a kill or be killed uh, sort of culture. So at the very least, just kind of understand that, you know, in this culture, in this day and age, people saw it differently. You wanted people to defend those whom you loved. You know, there were bad people out there. Uh, and Israel was an uh, agrarian society. Israel planted crops, and Israel kept flocks, and that's how they survived. Well, there were uh, nomadic tribes or uh, um, scarcely settled tribes in the area who, who made their living not by planting crops, but by raiding other people's crops and raiding other people's flocks, right? So they were sort of very violent bandits, and these are the sort of people that the soldiers were, were fighting, fighting off. So it was important uh, to the culture. Then you get this guy, Shama, uh, who drew the line during harvest time, it says, uh, who took his stand in, in a field of, of lentils. You will not get this field of lentils. These beans belong to the people of God. That was sort of his attitude. You've heard the saying, oh, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Well, Shama risked his life literally for a hill of beans, you know? Um, no, this is our food. Some family worked really hard for this field. Come at me. This ain't going down. Not this field. You're not getting these beans. And, uh, and he's been a hero of vegetarians ever since. But maybe even that was an extreme as, as the three guys raiding an enemy garrison, an encampment uh, of Philistines uh, in, in the town of Bethlehem. They'd, they had this big force, evidently. They'd blown into town. They'd taken over the whole town of Bethlehem, right? They chased everybody out. Uh, and three guys decided, well, you know, David's thirsty. Um, he's thinking fondly of his childhood well. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to go get him a drink of water. We're going to go fill his canteen uh, from the well that he used to drink from, used to water his flocks there when he was uh, a boy. Um, So they defy an entire army, essentially, uh, to get David a a drink of water. Uh, The stories go on in that chapter, in chapter 23, if you were to read further. There's this guy, Abishai, who killed 300 enemies with a spear. There's this guy, Benaiah, uh, who went into a pit on a snowy day uh, where it was icy, where there wasn't great footing, and he killed a lion in hand-to-hand combat with his bare hands. Um, You know, obviously, this was a culture that, that, uh, that appreciated uh, valor. Um, and these guys, in a way, were considered like the founding fathers of, of the kingdom of Israel. Remember, it was still a fledgling kingdom. It was still trying to hold itself together at that point. And David was, you know, he was clearly like the George Washington figure, the, the father uh, of the kingdom. Uh, but these fellows were the other famous patriots. They were ruffians and criminals who basically became heroic and continually beat the odds, which is what they had to do to win war against the people that were trying to invade the land. 
They had to continually beat the odds. And when you read these stories, I think it's perfectly natural to ask yourself, well, how did they become who they were? How did these guys, these criminals, right? These were guys that did not fit in, in their society. How did these guys become heroic? I mean, what was, what was the deal? And I think these stories are meant to inspire us to ask that question. How, how, do, you, how do you be heroic like that? Because, you know, it's, it's a celebrated thing. It's a good thing. Uh, for this people, it was a very necessary thing if, if they were going to make it. So I've thought about it, and here's some thoughts that I have about it. How do you become heroic in this manner? First, um, you uh, need to be an idiot, apparently. You need to be a little wrong uh, in the head. You, you need to not understand that discretion is the better part of valor. You need to, to not get that uh, lesson. You need to not understand that it's not really responsible to throw yourself at an enemy troop in order to protect beans, you know, uh, or to get a canteen of water from a certain well when, you know, you're carrying perfectly drinkable water with you. Thank you very much. You need to be a little stupid about things like that. And these guys seem perfectly willing to, to waste themselves on, well, I mean, on honor, right? On points of honor, which is really what these stories are about when you get right down to it. You know, we've talked a lot about code of honor in this series. And these guys, I mean, I, I think you can make the argument that they took honor too far, right? I mean, it's just, this is a little bit ridiculous, some of the things that they did. They just took honor too far. It's like they lost the ability to calculate at a certain point. They knew what the right thing was. They knew what was the right thing, and that was kind of all they knew. <laughs> they forgot everything else in their head, and they just did the right thing. So you can call that idiocy, you can call it extremity, or you can call it heroism. But whatever it is, that's what this story is, is about. Eleazar could not stand to think that his Israelites would retreat. No, 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 no. Israel does not retreat. You know, we are, we're the mighty men. We don't retreat. So he was standing there next to David, and, and Israel got spooked. They retreated. So he just refused to do what everyone else did. And, you know, it's like just him or just him and David. The way it reads is a little, a little weird. We're not really sure. But he stood his ground and, you know, eventually killed hundreds of guys uh, because he figured that was the right thing to do. And you got Shama, who thought, doggone it, this farming family worked hard for these beans. It's just not right that these guys can just sweep into town and just take what this family has worked a whole year to make. So, no. You know, this ends. It's just not right. The right thing to do is to defend beans. 
in this instance. And he just, you know, I mean, he just took it too far. He knew what was right, and he didn't know anything beyond that. And it kind of defined his day, didn't it? Um, and then, you know, it's like these three adventurers uh, who heard David say offhandedly, oh, I wish I, I wish I could drink from my, my old well in Bethlehem. That water was so cold. It was so pure. Um, and they said to themselves, you know, we can't stand to think that our leader, David, who has done so much for this country for so long without getting any thanks from anyone, wants a drink of water from his childhood home, and those Philistines, those filthy raiders, those reprobates, are occupying his, the old ranch. We just can't stand to think it. It's just not right. Period. Full stop. And they didn't calculate beyond that. And they just took off and snuck in and defied a garrison. I don't know how many Philistines they had to kill. Drew some water and scampered back to camp. His whole family has lost its home. David has lost his home. He's lost his reputation. But by golly, he will have a drink. And that was their attitude. And... You know, they were guys who just took, took honor too far. And, and where did they learn this, do you suppose? And, you know, at the end of the story of David's life, you can't help but think about, you know, David's life and, and what he showed in his life. And it's a lot like the honor that drove David to attack Goliath, right? You know, some shepherd boy who's out there carrying cheese and bread to his brothers, and he's like, why, why does this giant dude get to mouth off to the army of Israel? That's not right. That's not right. Period. Full stop. And his calculation never went beyond that. He said, well, I'll, I'll kill him. And everybody was like, you're so arrogant. What makes you think that you can do this? They're like, well, I mean, forget that. It's not right. I can't stand it. Give me some rocks. I'm going to go take care of this. And then he decided to do it with attitude, you know, with a little bit of swagger. Because when you're motivated by, you know, what's right, I mean, that doesn't change. You know, you have, to, you have to measure up. It's a lot like the behavior of a shepherd boy who would kill a bear or a lion who was trying to eat one of his sheep. You know, David said, I'll kill the giant just like I killed the bear or the lion who tries to take one of my sheep. You know, I grab that sucker and I beat him with a club till he's dead. Because, you know, shepherds protect sheep. That's kind of what we do. If you think about it, that's a stupid calculation. Right? Because shepherds, I mean, you're just going to eat that sheep yourself. Right? You're just going to kill that sheep eventually. So why would you risk your life against a bigger, more powerful animal to protect that sheep? Is that sheep really valuable? I mean, it's what shepherds do. You know, shepherds don't get, let lions attack sheep. Period. Full stop. It's not right. Idiocy. I don't know what that is, right? It's like you just don't think beyond what's right. <clears throat> There's a sort of heroic honor that doesn't weigh costs and benefits and balances and things like that. It just does what seems right. Period. That's it. It's self-forgetful. It's a lot like love in that way. Love just forgets the self. 
There's a code of honor that kind of does the same thing. And, 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 and when I think of it that way, the stories start to make sense to me. Because I think if we submit to something that's bigger than ourselves, well, that's the way to act beyond ourselves. I, I think it might be the only way, actually. If you believe in something bigger than yourself, that's the only way to become bigger than yourself, to serve the bigger thing. And if you're willing to be extreme in that, then you'll become an extreme sort of person. Maybe you'll develop a, an extreme sort of heroism, an extreme sense of honor. You'll become interesting. You'll generate some stories. One of our sayings around Blue Water is, we're in it for the stories. You know, stories are the wealth of life. It's a certain code of honor that factors in. And I think that's what these stories are about. Well, maybe, maybe the mighty men, maybe the guys kind of learned from David this code of honor, you know? Maybe that's why the story of David's life starts not with his coronation, but with him attacking uh, Goliath. Maybe that was kind of at the heart of who the kid was. It's like, well, there's right and there's not right, and right shall happen on my watch. And that eventually would make him the sort of king that God wanted. So maybe they learned it from David, but it's also pretty certain to me that the mighty men encouraged it in one another. Uh, heroism usually has a fellowship. It's one of the things that I've observed in life. I observe it in Scripture. I've observed it in history. The mighty men were a group of mighty men. And I think that's just really important to point out. You know, just like, just like the merry men who needed a better slogan than merry men. It loses something in today's age. Just like the knights of the round table. I mean, they were a fellowship, right? They encouraged greatness in, in one another. Just like Jesus had 12 disciples whom he sent out in pairs so that they could encourage heroism in, in one another. I had a professor at the University of Chicago, a famous professor named Martin Marty. Maybe some of you have read his stuff. He, he always said that great students always come in pairs. He would say that to his incoming classes. Great students always come in pairs. Uh, to my knowledge, he wouldn't explain it, but I, I feel like it's sort of intuitive because they always spurred one another on uh, to greater things. It's easier when you have a little, I don't know, a little friendly competition, a little mutual inspiration. For me to believe that I can jump over a six-foot barrier, well, I need a, a leap of faith, uh, literally. But if I see you jump over a six-foot barrier, I might believe that I can go six-one. You know? And my stepbrother used to have high jump contests in the backyard uh, pre-track seasons when we were a kid, and that's exactly how it would work. You know, it's like, I don't think I can do that. And then I see you do it. I think, oh, I can do that. <laughs> right? It's kind of how things work. And I, and I think there was something like that happening in the fellowship of, of the mighty men. Uh, Josheb Bashabeth uh, initially refused to retreat. Um, 
because David was standing next to him. You know, I said, well, I'm not going to retreat when I'm standing next to the guy who killed Goliath. No way. And then at a certain point, I don't know, it was just upon him. You know, he was just inspired, and, and all he did was he just kept going. And then hundreds of enemies were dead. And said his friends returned to him, but only to strip the dead. Um, if you see Shammah take on a whole troop to defend beans, well, then you're going to actually consider storming a Philistine encampment to get a cup of water. It's just how these things work. You inspire that sort of stuff in one another. If you hang around heroes, you start thinking a little heroically. If you want to be an honorable, heroic person, hang out with honorable, heroic people. You know, do that. Find them. Hang out with them. Uh, value them. I, I love to hang out with, with uh, certain people uh, with whom I've made some acquaintance or friendship uh, around the globe. There, there are people in, in my life I've gotten to know over years of ministry that I just, I just love to be with. You know, I will, I will travel hundreds, thousands of miles just to spend a little time with them, hopefully in the field with them, wherever their field is. Uh, I, I love to hang out with old Christians who have lived the life. You know what I mean by the life? You know, I, I don't really, I don't take this the wrong way, I don't really care what they believe. I love the life. You know, I don't need to believe great things. I need to see someone who has lived out what they believed in a great way. And that feeds me like nothing else. Just to kind of, just kind of, I don't know, be around that. Just to kind of absorb it, you know. It's not, it's not what we say to uh, each other. No conversation necessary. The best communication in my life does not happen through conversation. It's just like, it's... It's absorption, just, just being with people like that. I've got loads of people in the world telling me one way or another that life should be lived conservatively and carefully and normally and responsibly and all that stuff, which, you know, which is kind of true. Uh, but, but I want to be great. I do. I'm, I'm ambitious that way. I want to be great. I got one life. I really want it to be excellent. Uh, so when I find a person whom I think lives by honor, believe me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to soak it up. I'm going to find a way to be around that person and just, just absorb. Um, I remember this guy um, in college uh, who was a little bit spacey. He was a weird guy. Uh, he was part of our fellowship, um, but, I mean, kind of had a hard time of fitting into the fellowship. And I remember we were having a meeting one day and, and he came late. His name was Scott. And somebody said, dude, where were you? You know, this started 30 minutes ago. And he said, oh, I was praying. I said, well, you were praying? What do you mean you were praying? He said, well, I spent the day walking in the foothills, hanging out with God. All day? Yeah, all day. He spent eight hours walking in the hills, praying to God and just lost track of time. And I remember kind of eavesdropping on this conversation and just staring at him. And then, you know, the crowd cleared and stuff. And I, 
and I remember remarking to him, you really did that, didn't you? Changed my prayer life forever. You know, I mean, I knew that people would spend great periods of time talking to God, but I never knew someone personally who would spend eight hours on a walk just praying to God the whole time. I think he was even barefoot. I mean, he was spacey. You know, just like lost in the spirit. And, and I remember thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I could do that, but now I know I can do it. Does that make sense? Uh, because I just saw, you know, someone who was, you know, no different than me, except that he was different than me, if that makes sense. You get my point, right? So uh, if you were to read on in chapter 4, um, you'd read the last story uh, in, in Samuel and the last story from this version of David's life. And it's a story about David counting his fighting men, counting all the guys in his army. Uh, and, uh, and God doesn't like that, it turns out. And so a plague occurs in Israel and God ultimately relents from the plague and David builds an altar to God on the site that would become the great temple. And the reason God got so mad that David counted all the soldiers in his army is because uh, apparently David for a moment um, thought that it was important to take stock of his strength, to count his soldiers to see how strong he was. But the stories of the, of the mighty men show a different thing. And this is probably the big takeaway from the stories. For God's people, strength is not in number. For God's people, strength is not in strength. For God's people, strength is in character. For God's people, strength is in honor. And David didn't want, I mean, God did not want anyone to forget that. It's not about what we can reasonably do. It's about what we are willing to try. We become great not by being strong. We become great by acting with honor by being willing to try whatever seems right at the time. We become great not by being strong, but by being willing to try whatever seems right at the time. I would love to have a fellowship of mighty men and women uh, at Blue Water, and I think, I think we kind of do uh, uniquely, uh, more than any place uh, I've ever been. First of all, I'd like to be the sort of leader that inspires honor by example, that inspires this kind of heroic behavior, and God bless me that I might pull it off and do it well. I would like people to say of me the same thing that I said of my friend Scott in college. Oh, you mean you really did it? You mean you, mean you, really, you really tried You actually tried that? Huh. Interesting. I think there's something inspiring uh, about being a person like that. And, and then secondly, I like to have all sorts of great groups and great pairs, you know. Disciples come in pairs as well, it turns out, inspiring one another on uh, toward greatness. I, I would love to have, you know, little groups of disciples here sent out by Jesus to preach and to try and do miracles and who actually, you know, do it actually try it. I'd love to have a round table huh, at Blue Water at which we can sit with an understanding that we're all trying to do honorable things and living in an honorable way. Are we going to do the right thing, dot, 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 period, full stop. <laughs> Just going to do the right thing. You know, code of honor. 
And, and I like to, to be a fellowship where everyone is willing to be heroic because to have an exceptional life, you know, you don't really have to have an exotic life. I think everybody gets to play at this. Shama became heroic by honoring beans. That's pretty ordinary, but he just, he just did it at an extraordinary level in ordinary places and circumstances, behaving without compromise. And, and boom, you know, you'll, you'll become heroic. In, in a church family, no one should be lonely. Is that, is that, is that agreeable? In, in a church, no one should ever be lonely. So if you sense someone is lonely, what are you going to do? That's an ordinary problem. That's a problem that, that humans face every day. That's a problem that any fellowship will face uh, daily. So what are you going to do if you encounter someone who is lonely? Well, that's actually a point of honor if you let it be. It's like, no, you don't get to be lonely around me. I'm going to be, wait for it, friendly. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do what, you know, that group of people did for Angel the first time that she went to, you know, a uh, Christian fellowship meeting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask questions about you until you start to feel important. I'm just going to, I'm going to be persistent. I'm going to get involved with your life. Not because I like you, because, seriously, but because it's the right thing to do. And I will change your life by being extraordinary in this ordinary way. Heroism. There you go. Snaps. That's how it starts. Or, you know, in, in a church family, I don't think anyone should be in great material need. I think, mean, you know, there may be certain ones of us that don't have enough money, but together we have enough money. You know, together we can probably pull it off. So, you know, as a group, we have adequate resources. So if you sense someone is in material need, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's one of the first problems that the early church struggled with. It's like, uh, we should take care of each other. We should be, wait for it, generous. We should share. It's amazing how powerful simple generosity is. How powerful making family out of friends uh, can be. So what are you going to do about it? You know, Shama was willing to give his life so that a family uh, could eat, and he became a legend. Being extraordinary for ordinary things. Heroism is ordinary values applied extremely. That's all it is. So uh, just to finish, the story of David's life uh, is done, uh, sort of in the Bible, and it has its ups and downs, we can agree. And I asked myself, okay, well, why do the stories of the mighty men happen at the end of the chronicle of, of David's life? You know, you might be thinking, reading David's life, high highs, super low, super destructive lows, how should I judge a life like that? And it's, a, it's as if the chroniclers in the Bible are saying, uh, well, the mighty men were with David all along. It's the mighty men and those like them who give us the best way to evaluate David's life. It's as if the chroniclers are saying, yeah, I know what a mess this story is, but, but at his best, David was a man of honor unlike any other. At his best. At his worst, he was a murderer. 
but he was capable of a tremendous code of honor. He really did that. He really did face down the giant. He really did fight for his nation even though he was a criminal. He really did that stuff. And that stuff creates legacy. Even if you don't do it perfectly, that stuff shapes the world around you. And it's like the chroniclers are saying to us, judge him by the effects he had on those who really walked with him. You know, those who fought next to David became mighty. Those who stuck with him through his ups and downs, and that was a lot of sticking, but those who stuck with David through his ups and downs became heroes and legends. Nobody's perfect, but if your life produces that, okay, that's a heart that God can get behind. The people who stick with you through all of your craziness and messes become much better people as a result because you demonstrate honor. Well, okay. Good life. You know, you did it. Ask for forgiveness for all the messy things, but, but you know, you're just human, and that's pretty awesome. Jesus changed the world by focusing on 12 men. David created a kingdom by inspiring about three dozen guys. You influence all the people around you, um, hopefully for good. Uh, you won't do it perfectly like David didn't do it perfectly, but give the people around you a standard. Let them know what your standard is. Let them see you actually do it. Let them see you try to do what is right, even uh, when it's unreasonable and costly. You know, show that to the people in your Ohana group. Get an Ohana group, because you're not going to be much of a hero if you're alone. Show it to your family. Uh, Show that to your kids. And uh, it's all that God is asking of us. Let's pray. Speak, Holy Spirit, uh, to those of us who need a lesson directly from uh, your heart today. Uh, I pray that you would inspire us to be great. I pray that you would inspire us to be heroes in our fields of beans. I pray that you would inspire us to be heroes when we see somebody thirsty. I pray that you'd inspire us to be uh, contagious, contagiously honorable in our Ohana groups. I pray that you would inspire us to construct a community so that we can have a legacy when the day is done. Give us a firm sense of what is right. So few people in this day and age even have the courage to admit that there is a right and wrong. Give us a standard, Lord. I pray that you'd speak to us about situations that we're facing in our life and uh, give us the gold standard for those situations. Give us the God standard for those situations. There is a right behavior. There is a wrong behavior. 